0: The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, it is good to be with you. Uh, If you're a guest or visitor, welcome. Uh, My name is Penny, and I want to commend you for battling the winter storm. And, uh... (laughs) Uh, The Canadian in me is just like, storm, what is that? You know, it's like rain. Um, But uh, regardless, uh, uh, we got a little bit of snow and now it can go away for the rest of the year. Um, But it is good to be with you. And uh, if you are uh, new with us, you're joining us in the midst of a sermon series in the book of Romans. And specifically, we're in Romans 8 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans 8. Uh, You remember a couple weeks ago I mentioned that though uh, over the last uh, few months as we've been going through the book of Romans, we've been moving at a pretty steady pace, as we come to this chapter, Romans 8, we are slowing down. And we're taking six weeks to cover this entire chapter, Um, and so that means we have a couple more weeks left in Romans 8. And so this morning we're just taking a small section, verses 18 through 25. And in these verses, Paul is continuing a theme that he began last week. So if you remember, if you were with us in the last week, Paul said that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of God's Spirit, we are assured that we are the children of God, that that's not something we create in ourselves. It's not something that we come up with on our own, but actually God's Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God, that we are brothers and sisters of the King. But we're not only children of God. That's not the only assurance that the Spirit gives us. The Spirit also assures us that we're heirs with Christ. Right? That's what we heard last week. And since we are heirs with Christ, this means we are going to suffer with Christ and we will be glorified with him. Well, it's those two themes that Paul is continuing to expand upon in our passage this morning. And so follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, the passage is projected on the screens in front of you. Beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we we wait for it with patience. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask now that by your spirit you would lead and guide us that your spirit would assure us that we are your people and that you are at work in our midst. And so we pray that you would lead us away from sin, you would lead us into repentance, you would lead us in your truth. And so we ask that you would be present amongst us and you would work and move now. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, this past week, um, as I was preparing the sermon, I was doing so by, uh, as I was listening to some music, and the particular piece I was listening to was uh, Beethoven's Allegro for Concerto for Piano and Orchestra Number no. 5. Now, I have to tell you, um, I don't know what some of those words mean. <laughs> Allegro, concerto, I couldn't tell you what those things mean. I am by far uh, not an expert when it comes to classical music. Um, I couldn't distinguish between Beethoven and Bach, Mozart and Tchaikovsky, right? If we played them, I would say that is beautiful and wonderful. Who is that? <laughs> I am no expert, and yet, uh, even though I'm non expert, even though I don't know the titles of these pieces, even though I don't know some of the words in the titles, I know that it is beautiful, right? I mean, to go to a symphony, to listen to an orchestra, to hear the strings and the brass, to hear the the deep sounds of the woodwinds and the crash of the percussion. It's glorious. You don't have to be an expert in classical music to appreciate the beauty and the wonder that is Beethoven. And so this past week, I was listening to this particular piece, but, but this particular piece is very unique. You see, this piece is a recording of the Berlin Symphony and a a piece that they played on January 23rd, 1944. Now, this particular recording has been preserved quite nicely. And, and you can go on and listen to it and on YouTube. You could do this this afternoon if you want. And what makes this particular piece so unique and so fascinating is that there are moments in this piece where, where the, the music, where the, the instruments become very quiet and very low. And in the distance, you can hear outside the walls of the concert hall you can hear the exploding of anti-aircraft guns firing. Beethoven, the glory of Beethoven, and the groaning of war, all intermixed together. It's quite unique. It's quite fascinating, and as I listened to it, and as I could barely make out the sounds of the guns being fired, as I could hear the roar of the percussion, as I heard these two sounds intermixed, I was struck by what an apt picture this is of our lives in the world. Because don't our lives often feel like they are filled with great glory as well as great groaning? Right? I mean, that's what we feel, don't we? That that we experience the beauty and glory of this world, right? The laughter of a child, the sun peeking over the mountaintops, the feeling of embrace from a loved one. We experience beauty and glory. And we also experience pain. Like disease and death, deceit and addiction. Glory and groaning are part of this world, and they are part of our lives. And that's what Paul is talking about in these verses. He's talking about the glory that we will experience, but also the groaning that we know. Right? We hear about the groaning. Paul tells us that, that the creation itself groans. Did you see it in verse 22? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The creation is groaning, and why is it groaning? Well, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And so what Paul is doing is he is pointing us back to the curse of Genesis chapter 3. You're remembering Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve had been instructed by God, commanded by him that they could eat of any of the fruit in the garden, but, but they could not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what did they do? They were deceived by the serpent. They took of the fruit. They ate. They devoured it. They consumed it. They turned away from God's command and his law. And because they introduced sin into this world, God brought punishment upon them. He brought punishment upon them, but it's not just upon them. In the midst of this punishment, God cursed his creation. God said to Adam in Genesis 3, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. The creation was subjected to frustration. Thorns and thistles would grow up. Right? The, the creation itself would feel the weight of the curse. This passage is telling us just how far-reaching, how wide and how deep the effects of the fall are. That we don't just experience it in our own bodies and in our spirits and in our souls, but, but actually the creation itself is groaning under the weight of the curse. But it's not just the creation, we too groan. Right, the people groan, we see it in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Now I'm going to come back to that language of first fruits in a little bit, but but what Paul is telling us is that we groan because of the suffering we experience in this world. And the Bible is clear, it is honest, right there is suffering. The Bible doesn't pass over it. Doesn't sugarcoat it, doesn't ignore it. Paul doesn't present with us present us with a vision of the Christian life that is free from sadness or devoid of pain. He's honest about it. And we know this pain, don't we? This groaning We groan because our health fails and relationships falter. We groan because of deception and abuse, nights of sleeplessness and days marked by sadness. We groan. And y'all, the Bible gives us permission to groan. We see it throughout the Psalms. We hear it in the words of the prophets. We see it in the epistles and we see it in Jesus himself. I mean, do you remember in John chapter 11 when Jesus is confronted by the death of his friend Lazarus and he goes to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried and he sees his friends, they are mourning and they are grieving, they are filled with sadness. What did he do? Jesus wept. And when he looked upon their despair, when he looked upon their grief, we're told that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The language that's used there, the Greek word, it it actually means that Jesus had indignation. That he was indignant. The word that's used there is the word that's used for, for a war horse as it snorts in battle. Jesus experienced anger and indignation at death. He groaned ...over the suffering of this world. And so too can we. Not just so too can we, but so too should we. You see, the Bible doesn't just give us permission to groan... ...and to name suffering for what it is. But, but the Bible tells us that when faced with sadness and sickness... ...with terror and trouble, that, that weeping and lament... ...that grieving and groaning, that is the right response... That we are to groan, but groaning isn't the only response. You see, for those who are trusting in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, groaning isn't the only response. No, we we also respond with hope, hope and glory. Paul says in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, so do you see what Paul's doing here? He's acknowledging suffering, right? He's not saying it doesn't exist. It's a figment of our imagination. He's not saying anything like that. He's acknowledging suffering, but when he looks to the glory that is to come, what he says is that suffering can't even compare. Now, upon first hearing this, it might feel like Paul is being incredibly insensitive, right? For those who are in pain and sorrow, I mean, maybe even some of you, maybe you walked into this place this morning and you're experiencing physical pain or uh, emotional turmoil, or you still feel the scars and the wounds of previous pain, and so you hear Paul say this, and maybe you think, it sounds like Paul's saying, you know what, it's really not that bad, or you just need to get over it or or Paul doesn't really know what suffering is like But Paul knows what suffering's like, doesn't he? Do you remember in 2 Corinthians 11? Paul describes his experience as an apostle, and he experiences all the things he's expe- he expresses all the things he's experienced in this world. And he says some of these things like he endured imprisonment. And beatings, often close to death. Five times he received 40 lashes less one. Now, now, 40 lashes less one, 39 lashes. They believed in this time period that 40 lashes would bring someone to death. And so 39 lashes would bring you to the point of death, but, but your life would be preserved. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He had been stoned and shipwrecked. He faced danger from thieves and enemies and false witnesses. What Paul is telling us is that he knew toil and trouble. He knew suffering and sorrow. And yet he can say the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. Paul is not minimizing suffering. He's not saying it's not that bad. He is saying as bad as suffering might be, when compared to the glory of God, there is no comparison. He isn't minimizing suffering and sorrow. He is making much of glory. And so what this means... What this means is that those who suffer, your suffering and your sadness is not the totality of who you are. It is real. It is true. The sadness you experience, it is a reality. And if you are in Christ, There is more to who you are than simply suffering. There is more to who you are than grief. There is hope. There is hope. Suffering does not have the last word over our lives, glory does. Glory to be revealed. And what is that glory to be revealed? Well, Paul tells us in verse 23. The adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is the glory that will be revealed. Remember last week, Paul said that we are adopted. We're adopted now. Like we are the children of God today. If you are trusting in Christ, you are a son and daughter of God now. And the fullness of your adoption will not come until Jesus returns. The fullness of our adoption will be manifest in physical, redemptive bodies. When Paul says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, what he's doing is he's invoking this agricultural understanding. Right? First fruits were, were the first fruits of the harvest, right? A first apple or, or lettuce or, or snap pea, right? And, and those first fruits of the harvest, they give us an indication of what the fullness of the harvest will be like. And so what Paul is telling us, that, that the first fruits of the Spirit, the, the work that the Spirit has begun to adopt us, to redeem us, to renew us, That that first fruit will find its harvest, not simply in this world, but in our lives when the fullness of adoption comes. When the renewal of our body comes. The first fruits of the Spirit find its fullness in the glory to be revealed. That is the promise of God. That what awaits us is not disembodied spirits floating around heaven. What awaits us is renewed bodies. Physical bodies, eternity of physical renewal. Glorified bodies that are now free from sin and suffering and grief and groaning. That's what awaits us. That is what we eagerly long for. That is what we hope for. Right? Paul says in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. What's the hope? Of glory. Of the glory to be revealed. Now hope that is, not seen, that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we see, we wait for it with patience. See friends, biblical hope isn't wishful thinking. And it's not naivete, it it is grounded in the promise of God. As one theologian put it, hope focuses on God's future and lets it shape the present. And the hope of redemptive bodies shapes our present by causing us to look and to wait with expectation for that day. To take our eyes off of our groaning and our grief and look to the glory to be revealed. That is what we hope for. And what's amazing about this hope and this expectation is that it's not limited to us. It actually extends to the creation. Did you see it in verses 19 and following? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God." That word, eager longing, uh, we actually think that Paul made this Greek word up. Um, so, uh, it doesn't appear in Greek literature anywhere. The only place this Greek word shows up is in the Bible, and in Paul. Um, so Paul was making up words. I guess we can make up some words too. I, I'm not sure what those words are, but but this word that Paul made up it has the sense of craning one's neck, or standing on tiptoes to to look beyond what is in front of us and look to something off in the distance. And so the picture that Paul is giving us is that the mountains and the trees, the rivers and the oceans, the flowers and the grass, that that they are standing on metaphorical tiptoes and looking to the distant, to the future day when the children of God will be revealed. And they are looking to this day because when the children of God are revealed to all of the world, when we are declared sons and daughters of God, That they're looking forward to this day because in that day it will mean that the kingdom is consummated. That the kingdom of Christ has come. That renewal has taken place. A renewal not just of us, but of God's creation itself. Isaiah 35 puts it this way The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The blind will see and the deaf will hear. There is a renewal that will take place in God's people and the streams will flow in the desert. There is a renewal in his creation. It's what Revelation 21 calls the new heaven and the new earth. And that is the renewal to come. That is the glory that we wait for. Water no longer contaminated with curse. Can you imagine how crystal that will be? Grass, no longer sharpened by rebellion. Can can you feel how soft it will be? Air, no longer polluted by sin. Take a deep breath and fill your lungs. Redemptive bodies, And the revealing of the children of God and the renewal of creation. That is the glory that awaits us. So, how do we know that our hope isn't in vain? We're to hope for this day, we're to long for it. How are we to know that, that this hope is not in vain? That's the question, isn't it? How can we be sure that this is our true future? You know, this past week, I was at a restaurant, and I was uh, sitting there, and I was reading a book, and this man came and sat near me, and he struck up a conversation with me, and amongst the many things that uh, we talked about, one of the things that he asked me was, um, so where do you look for hope in this world? I mean, like, could he tee it up any better than that, right? Right? Now, granted, this was after he told me I was delusional, but regardless, um, that, that's another conversation. But, but he asked me, where, where do you look for hope in this world? And, and I'm sure he was thinking I was going to say, well, well, myself. I look for hope in, in humanity generally, in the next generation, that they won't make the same mistakes as my generation or, or the one that came before us, Right. Um, or, or maybe I look for hope in, in leaders and government, right? Maybe he was thinking I was going to say one of these sorts of things, but I looked at this man, and I said to him, well, well, I don't look for hope in anything in this world. In fact, to look for hope in this world is a fool's errand. Because, friends, hope isn't found in this world. No, to hope in ourselves or humanity or in leaders or in government or in anything of this world is to have no hope at all. No, you see, we hope in one not of this world. We hope in one who's gone before us because Jesus is the one who was confronted with death and what did he do? He groaned. He was the one who was full of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He is the one who suffered and died and he is the one who rose again. He is the one who overcame suffering and death and he lives today for all eternity in a glorified body. Our hope is in the one who has sent his spirit and by his spirit has adopted us into the family of God and since he lives in glory, so too will we. You see, our hope is in the one who has gone before us. Our hope is in the one who has suffered and died, but has had victory over death. Our hope is the one who experiences glory even today. So friends, as we look at this world, and we look to see where it is that we can find hope, we don't look to this world. Because in this world, what we will do is groan. And in this age, music will be interrupted by bombs, and joy at times will take a back seat to sadness. Suffering and sorrow will come. But our hope is that the groaning will give way. That glory will come. And so we hope, and we wait with eager expectation. We wait with the hope for adoption as sons and daughters, redemption of our bodies. We wait with hope for the glory that will one day be revealed. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we do have hope, that we uh, do not have a hope that is in vain or one that is of uh, this world, but we have hope in one who is not of this world, our Lord Jesus Who came into this world and who lived and died. Who suffered and was sad and yet is victorious over death and suffering. And whose glory we will one day share in. And so we long for that day to come. We ask you, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly and bring about the glory to be revealed the adoption of sons and daughters, the renewal of this creation and the redemption of our bodies. Come quickly, we pray. We pray this in the name of Christ. And God's people said together, Amen.